Hello, bingers. It's another week and another amazing woman from the true crime podcasting world. My guest today co-hosts two great podcasts that you're going to love if you're not already a fan. She has a PhD in criminal justice. She co-hosts the Direct Appeal podcast, and she's here today to talk about her Women in Crime podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, the always fascinating Dr. Amy Schlossberg. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. So I don't do this that often. Okay. Well, this is my studio. <laughs> my fancy <laughs> studio. Always, right? Um, so I don't do it that often. Usually I'll go to Megan's to record because she has the proper studio. Uh huh. So I'm always excited when it actually, the setup works. Yeah. So. It looks great. And I like the organization of your closet behind you. It looks like everything's in proper order. That's Alan's side. <laughs> if I turned the camera, you would be horrified. My husband's anal and I'm a mess. <laughs> so you just That's point the camera. That's why I'm facing this way. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I, w- I want to get, get, first of all, your last name is pronounced Schlossberg. Am I saying that right? I don't know. Actually, my friends tell me I pronounce it wrong. So uh, I say, <laughs> I say Schlossberg because I think it rolls off the tongue easier, but I'm told uh-huh. that it's Schlossberg. So, and, and do you take your friends? input on on how to pronounce your name i don't i just do whatever i'm lazy so sloshberg like putting an sh on that second s it just sloshberg it's fast saying sloshberg sloshberg you know it's like a delay if you do it the right way so (laughs) sloshberg i'll go with sloshberg if that's your preference what do your uh what do your parents how do they pronounce it um i think (laughs) sloshberg yeah (laughs) (laughs) to tell you the truth bob i don't think i've ever really Heard them say their last name. <laughs> that your parents don't introduce themselves to you and speak to you as Mr. and Mrs. <laughs> Schlossberg? No. Just been mom and, and dad. Luckily, to- yeah, exactly. And luckily, my kids have my husband's last name, so they don't have to worry about it. They don't have to deal with it at all. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, it's great to meet you in person. I met your, your partner in crime, so to speak, a couple weeks yeah. ago. I had, I had Megan on to talk about uh, the Direct Appeals podcast. Direct Appeals or Direct Appeal? Direct Appeal. Direct Appeal podcast. Maybe you guys could take some input from me. I, to me, it looks like it's pronounced Direct Appeals uh, the way I see it. Interesting. I guess it could be. Now that we're in season two, there is more than one appeal. So, <laughs> right? <laughs> you guys, uh, I feel like you guys are, are easy, too easily influenced in the pronunciation of your name. In your podcast. We are. It's whatever the, whatever the people tell us, we go with. <laughs> right. So I, I, ch- I just checked out uh, a couple episodes of Women in Crime, and I'm really interested in it. This episode is going to, so for the listeners, we're, re- we're in kind of a time machine here because we're recording this a few weeks ago, but this is going to drop on St. Patty's Day, which will be just, so we are right now, what, six days away from you dropping an episode on a case that I covered for a year on Truth and Justice, uh, the, the murder of Jim Melgar and the what I believe is a wrongful conviction of Sandy Melgar 
Um, that's going to drop for you guys, you said, next week on the 23rd, right, Tuesday? That's correct, yes. And yeah, Bob, can I just say that your podcast, I've always known about that case because I study wrongful convictions, but I fell in love with that coverage because I always knew she was wrongfully convicted, but I did not know the extent of that evidence. And I am in my car about 12 hours a week, and mm -hmm. I devoured that season on Sandy Melgar in about a week. And what is it, like 40-something episodes? Oh, I think, yeah, it, it, probably <laughs> at least that. <laughs> yeah, and I was just, and then I was hooked from that point forward. But your coverage was incredible on that case. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Did you, I, I don't know how many spoilers you want to give away for next week. Did you, did, did uh, you and Meg come to any kind of conclusion? I, I, I mean, I see you say that you've studied wrongful convictions, so you studied that case. Yeah, um, I don't think anyone could come to any more of a conclusion than you did in that case. That was such a deep dive. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we talk about things a little bit, maybe a little bit more from like a criminological standpoint, but no, nothing really big. I was really hoping she'd be exonerated by now. And I was hoping that's what that I was waiting to cover that case because I was hoping that she'd be exonerated. So I was like, oh, I'll cover it right. once she gets exonerated. But then I said, you know what? I can't sit on this story anymore. Every podcast needs to do that story. Yeah, I agree. And and I know it's so frustrating and, and hopefully it's, it's coming soon. I mean, she's got one of the best attorneys in the world working with her, Kathleen Zellner now, um, who coincidentally, you guys in Women in Crime did an episode on Kathleen Zellner. Yeah. So I think it's coming soon, but it's just, but man, the wheels of justice turn slow as it is. The wheels of justice in Texas seem to turn painfully slow. Um, so it just, it just seems like this is such a, you know, it's just dragging and taking so long and should be out by now. But, but really, I think her case is probably moving faster than most in Texas because of uh, Kathleen Zellner's involvement. Yeah, that was once I heard Kathleen was on the case, I said, okay, I think there'll finally be something moving right. here. I hope. If, I mean, if Kathleen can't do it, who can, right? <laughs> yep. If, if anybody can get something done, they can definitely, it'll definitely be her. And so I'm curious, you and Meg have two podcasts that seem to launch like almost it, pretty close to the same time. How did how did that happen? Did, did you guys did you guys come together, have coffee one day, and you both had an idea for a podcast, and you couldn't decide which one? Was there always a plan to do two? How did how did you guys end up with two podcasts? So there was never a plan to do one, um, <laughs> <laughs> and definitely not two. But the first one kind of um, the story came to us, and then we were trying to figure out an outlet to tell the story. So that's mm -hmm. how Direct Appeal came to be. Right. Women and crime. I think so Megan teaches women in crime and if I remember correctly she's she was looking at podcasts one day and said how is there not a podcast called women in crime so they you know they quickly you know it's similar to I, I heard you talk about how you have all these domains that you grab <laughs> for business right. ideas that never were <laughs> so we're, we're we're kind of we're kind of similar the second we see that a podcast has not been taken we're like okay we, we got it you know <laughs> so, right so we did that. We got the domain. We got the podcast name. And then we decided, you know, let's do an episodic because it serialized direct appeal. But we right. figured why not try, you know, our uh, let's dip our toe in the episodic world of true crime podcasts. And that's how that came to be. That's awesome. So what does your guys production schedule look like? So I also produce two podcasts, mm -hmm. uh, three a week, counting the follow up with Truth and Justice. But I have a team of people that do it with me. And it's that's all we do. We don't, you know. I don't also, you know, teach at a college at the same time. So, so what is what does a week look like for you guys? What's your production schedule? How do you make 
two podcasts and teach courses and and have a family all at the same time? Um, I'm pretty shitty at it. I don't know. <laughs> I'm a really shitty mom, I guess. I don't know. No, um, you'll edit any. You'll edit things to make me sound like poised, right? Um, right, anyway. but shitty mom's staying in for sure. <laughs> hey, it's got to. Someone's got to say it. Um, so, I mean, we have our producer, James, who does everything. He is incredible. So I think if it wasn't for him, none of this would happen. But Direct Appeal was once we finished production on that, that's when we started Women in Crime. So that project was done. The issue now is we're doing Direct Appeal season two and three while also doing Women in Crime and also teaching. And, you know, I have a side get another side job. So it's all this stuff. But we try to I'll go to Megan's. You know, after we get our COVID test, you know, we we make sure we're very, very safe. But I'll go to Megan's about once a month and we'll bang out a couple of episodes. And so right now our episodes are, let's see, we're recorded up until like the end of April at this point. So we just keep, you know, we have a backlog so that we can kind of get ahead of things as we're starting production in Direct Appeal Season 2. Women in Crime is somewhat taken care of, at least from the recording standpoint. James is always editing. But, right. the, you know, Megan and, you know, we probably write only two episodes a month because we're biweekly and we okay. switch off. So really, it's not that it's not that much because each of us is only releasing one episode a month. You guys do a great job and and your editor does a fantastic job. It, it's, it's funny with you guys balancing all that. Your process is so similar to ours when we decided to add True Crime Binge to to NBI Studios here. Th- that's Mike is your James, James, you said is yep. your, is your editor, <laughs> yeah. Because I've re- you know I I have I have ten of these episodes recorded at once before I started season ten of Truth and Justice, and so I get to sit back and breathe. Of course, Mike is always every day editing, editing, editing. You know, getting them all ready. Yep, exactly. So I have the easy. I think our job's the easy part. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is for sure, <laughs> for sure. Compared to the editing work, so tell us a little bit about yourself. First of all. Um, your main job is, is I know you teach. What do you teach? Where do you teach? So I teach, crimi- well, I'm a criminology professor and department chair at Fairleigh Dickinson University. It's a small mm-hmm. liberal arts co- college in New Jersey. This semester, I'm teaching research methods, which is like a statistics class, which is nice. It's, it's nice to kind of get a break from, I usually teach theory of crime. So I'm taking a break from that this semester. I'm also teaching wrongful convictions this semester. Um, last semester, I taught race and crime. I teach reentry and reintegration. I also teach um, in various correctional facilities around the state. So I'm currently doing that as well. Uh, because of COVID, I haven't been in the prison in about a year, but I'm doing everything by mail, which is quite interesting. Well, that's cool. So you were just 100% engrossed in the work that it, that you talk about also on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So how did how did you get into... The, the criminal justice field. I mean, you, you you are more into this field than anyone I think I've ever spoken to. Yeah. You know, the, as, far, as far as, I mean, literally every element of your professional life revolves around, you know, the, the study of, of crime and criminology. Yeah. And I also commit crimes myself to, I'm just kidding. Right. Which is, a, you know, which is, <laughs> I guess that out. answers the question as to why you're so interested in it, because that's the way to make sure you don't get caught. Exactly. Now, from an early age, I was always very aware of social injustice and equality. I've always wanted to do something to kind of make the world a better place, you know, mm-hmm. a bleeding heart from a young age. And then I worked 
I guess I, my work with the Innocence Project probably started my obsession with wrongful convictions. Mm-hmm. And then it just went from there. I was in forensic psychology for a little while. I was very interested in actually doing therapy in prison for with death row inmates. Then I realized New Jersey doesn't have a death row. And I lived in New Jersey, so I kind of pivoted a little. Right. And I ended up, I ended up in going to, in a, uh, going to academia after finishing my PhD. And, and so what is your PhD in? Sorry, my PhD is in criminal justice. In, in criminal justice. What'd you write your thesis on? Thesis, that's the right word, right? Um, it's called a dissertation. Dissertation, that's what I meant. <laughs> yes, and not, and when I was, do you know, dissert, dissertating is actually a verb? Isn't that interesting? So, really? I used to be, you might want to edit this out because it sounds so ridiculous, but Alan would call me from work. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm just dissertating on the couch. He's like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Like people would actually say dissertating, and I'm like, that just sounds so wrong. I don't believe <laughs> that I have and, ever dissertated in my entire life. You know what, Bob? You're still young. First time. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, so I wrote my dissertation on what did I write it on? Post exoneration offending. Okay. I was interested in. I studied people who were wrongfully convicted and those who ended up back in prison after they were already found innocent of an original crime. Oh, wow. So, very fascinating. I mean, we're talking about, I think the numbers were like 30, between 34, 35% of people in my sample who were wrongfully convicted ended up back in prison within five years. Wow, that's that's fascinating. So these are people that truly were wrongfully convicted, that went to prison, had not committed the crime they were convicted for, got out and then committed a crime and went back. Yeah, and I, I'm sure you have some hypotheses as to why that might be. Any idea why these individuals end up back in the system? Well, as I dissertate over that for a second, <laughs> uh, um, but well, you know, I just offhand, I would think there's there's probably a number of of reasons. One, I think, would be that our prison systems are awful, and if someone, I think that would be the biggest reason. If someone goes into our prison system not a criminal, by the time they come out. Especially when it comes to violence and a certain way of life that they've been subjected to for all those years. You know, as I always said, people don't come out of prison typically better than they went in. Yeah, that would be, you are correct there. It's called the, it's called prisonization. So it's the idea that, you know, we take an otherwise law abiding citizen because I did filter it out by people with prior convictions mm-hmm. just because I wanted to make a stronger point. And if someone has prior convictions, then we know statistically they're more likely to have future convictions. Right. So, I did isolate those cases. I wanted to look at people who were otherwise law-abiding citizens, in air quotes, mm-hmm. right? Because who knows what a law-abiding citizen means. Right. But, you know, for your research, you need to operationalize these things. So I was looking at people that had no priors. So, you know, in essence, the prison system made them a criminal. That's, God, that's fascinating. Because that was going to be the other element that I was going to add was, well, the other, only other thing I could think of is, the wrongful conviction came from the kind of the usual suspect syndrome where they are often committing crimes and they just happen to not commit the one that they were wrongfully convicted of. But if you, you but you, exactly. but you, you weeded those people out. Well, I looked at them for other analyses. So, um, about 40, again, this was 10 years ago at this point, but somewhere in the 40%, low 40%, those were the people that had priors. Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely right. It's like, you know, the usual suspect. Wrong place, wrong time, or I did this, but that doesn't mean I did that. Yes, I was dealing drugs, but I didn't kill anyone. Right. Or, you know, those types of cases. And then I, I know this isn't what this conversation's about, but sorry, you got me going. 
really quickly, there's also labeling theory mm -hmm. that could explain it. People that serve time, you know, that, um, people who are wrongfully convicted do not get their records expunged. So you have, you know, these individuals having trouble getting housing jobs. Right. They're not getting medical services, mental health services. I mean, the list goes on and on. And not surprisingly, people who did not receive compensation were more likely to end up um, incarcerated. Yeah, absolutely. Because they come out and they've got some felony on their record and they can't, you know, they, they can't find a job. And so they just turn to other avenues. That's fascinating work. Yeah. By any chance, did that work include... Or did you look at all into the Stephen Avery case? I have I have my opinions on that case, but it, on on Netflix at least, he his case kind of fits this mold, right? Where he was convicted of this rape. Turns out he was wrongfully convicted, and then I guess not on Netflix. On Netflix, he definitely didn't then turn around and rape and kill after that. Yeah. So when that came out, that was after I'd already you know published my studies findings. I can't really say if he was part of my original sample because of, you know, all these research uh, ethical constraints that you're not allowed to talk about your research oh, subjects. Okay. So I can't say whether or not he was included in my initial sample, but I can say that when that case became mainstream media, I found it just so fascinating hearing the narratives around it as someone who looked at, at that exact phenomenon, right. if you want to call it that. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's an interesting, you know, and, and I don't know if he, it was, it was guilty of the murder or not i have my opinions on it but e either way it's still interesting the fact that you know he served all that time for a rape that he didn't commit and then either lightning struck twice and he was then framed and wrongfully convicted for another crime or he came out of of prison after being wrongfully convicted and then committed a, a violent crime afterward either way it's a sad story mm -hmm. right um, also, you know, in that case, you can't ignore the corruption, you know, the conspiracy theories. Yeah, it's just that case is the layers in that case are just it's a fascinating case. Well, speaking, speaking of layers and conspiracy theories, I guess that's a great time to transition into <laughs> the case that we're going to we're going to be talking about today. It's actually a perfect segue. This case. And so I, I listened. This is for those of you that want to listen to. The um the women in crime episode on this it's episode number eight of season one, but I wanted to yeah, I researched the case a little bit and I wanted to hear your guys' take on it. And I remember when this happened. I was I was young in my in my twenties. I remember hearing about it. Didn't really know the details until I I listened to your episode and then started doing a little more research. And it is infuriating, like the most frustrating, infuriating. This is one of my top ten cases. So we're we're, we're going to be talking about the the death of Lavina Johnson, who was was deployed in Iraq in the army in two thousand five. Now I'll let you describe kind of the the basics of the case. Okay, and I I have to correct one thing, Bob. You said the death. I'm going to go and say the murder of Lavina Johnson because I'm glad you did because I checked case, myself because yes. I was going to say that. In the nice. Well, because legally it is the death of right. 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 Um, when you look at, so you actually said it the correct way, but it's so infuriating this case that it's. I mean, I. Well, we'll talk about our theories. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to jump too far ahead. So for now, would you like you want me to just give you a little bit of the background of the case? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So Lavina Johnson, she lived outside of uh, St. Louis, Missouri. And she was deployed because she wanted to help pay for her own college education. So in summer of 2005, she went to a, do a service tour in Iraq. Now, she was extremely close with her family. She kept in very close touch with them. 
And just eight weeks into her um, deployment, the family receives a visit to inform them that their daughter was dead. And at this point, they're not given any information and they're shocked. They had just spoken to Lavina a few days earlier. They knew she was not in active duty. She was working at a communication center. And the father and Lavina's father said that the soldiers that came to the home said something about a self-inflicted wound. And then he inquired and they kind of stopped and said, oh, we, you know, we don't know what happened. So from the beginning, it seemed like things were a little shady. They were, they did not tell the family initially how the daughter, how their daughter died. To me, that's a huge issue. So of course, you know, the Johnson family, they were in shock. Um, the information was so vague and so contradictory. Sorry, I'm, I'm trying not to like give away certain things, but basically, long story short, so it's a very long story. She was flown home so she could be buried with military honors. Her family had, um, wanted to do an open casket and they were strongly advised. They had a military liaison who was working with them and they were strongly advised that due to her condition, they should not have an open casket. And the family said, well, she's our daughter and we're having an open casket. So they have an open casket and she actually looks better than the family anticipated. And just to, you know, I didn't mention it before, but it turns out that Lavina died from a gunshot wound. The gunshot wound in which the military claimed was self-inflicted. Mm-hmm. They claim that she used her M16 rifle to shoot herself in her head. Then they changed her story and said that she shot herself um, in her chin. The family noticed all they saw was a small bullet hole on the upper left side of her head. There was not much damage to her face. And we're talking about, you know, the military said there was an M16 involved. So it didn't make sense. The bullet hole was more consistent with like a nine millimeter. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, Lavina is right-handed. It was on her left-hand side. They eventually changed their, you know, they had to change their story. And they said, oh, that's actually an exit. That must have been the exit um, point of the bullet. That's why it was, you know, such a, it didn't do so much damage. Um, her nose looked like it was reconstructed. You can see pictures online of what she looked like before and, you know, at her open casket. She also had gloves that were glued onto her hands. And, you know, the funeral home said they had never seen anything like this. Why would anyone glue? It's almost like, what are they hiding? Why are they gluing this woman's, you know, gluing her, her uh, gloves on her hands? So, again, they say it's, that... It's important to point out know, as far yeah. as with the uh, with the gloves that that she was shipped back home in full uniform. And, and that's why the, the yes. military liaison was there. And as part of the uniform, they put her gloves on and they, they literally glued her ha- her gloves onto her hands so that they couldn't be taken off. You're absolutely correct. And yes, it is it is normal for them to put the gloves on the hand as part of the uniform, mm-hmm. but to have it glued where they couldn't even get it off. You know, eventually they, they do get the gloves off later on when they exhume the body and they, you know, they find severe burns and other again bob i'm sorry i'm jumping around this case just gets me no, like, it's fine go ahead <laughs> um all right so according to the military records okay so she never shows up for her physical training she had work that day and then she was supposed to go to, phil- to physical training um after work she was apparently with this man he was never identified they went to a store to pick up you know m&ms and some drinks and then she hung out with this guy for apparently just a platonic friend He walked her back to her tent. And then in the early morning hours of July 19th, around 1 a.m. is when her body was discovered. Okay, so nobody, the problem is everything's classified. Right. We don't, we don't really know. We don't know who this guy is that she was with. We don't know any of this information. 
But when she was found, I just want to paint the picture. Have you seen the crime scene photos? I have. I have it on my desktop right now. Ugh. So her right hand is draped over her face. There's a large pool of blood under her head. Next to her body, there's a pile of burned papers, an aerosol can, and then there was a cot. And next to the cot was an M16 laying parallel. Okay. So how do you shoot yourself? As I'm as I'm looking at the photo as you're describing, because I, I heard you guys describe it on the podcast, and I had to go look at it. it it's ridiculous. I mean, absolutely insane that the 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 army investigators say that this was a self inflicted wound from this M16. So I, I mean, it's so she's yeah. So there's three things laying parallel. You have her, and then two feet or three feet to her left is a cot laying in the same direction, parallel to her. And then two feet on the other side of that is the M16 laying. So, so there, there are three lines there. It, it is, it's sitting, I'm guessing that's a 36-inch cot. I'm trying to scale it myself right now. The rifle is sitting four to five feet away from her hand on the other side <laughs> of a cot. Yeah, so they're suggesting what she shot herself, not to mention... If you look at how tall she is, it's virtually impossible. She would have had to pull the trigger with her toe, but yet she had her boots on. Like, it's it's right. not physically possible that she could have maneuvered this weapon in the way that they say she did. Yeah, she's five foot one. And that was the first thing I thought with the with the first story they gave, which is that she shot herself on the side of the head. I thought there's no way a five foot one person can hold an M16. For so those of you who don't know what an M16 is, it's like... From any of us that are that are my age or older, around forties, we just called it a machine gun back in the back in the day that you would see used in like Vietnam, and you know, there's different versions of assault rifles or whatever you have now. But that's what an M16 is. So it's a long rifle, and I wonder too if it was a modified version of one with a shorter barrel. But I'm looking at the photo, and it's not. I mean, that thing's got to have a 26 inch barrel on it. I mean, it's a long gun. Yeah, it's. It's unbelievable that I think, you know, so they had to change their story because it didn't add up. And I mentioned the shot was on her left side. She's right handed. Besides mm-hmm. the fact that the gun, the length, none of that made sense. So they say that she, you know, shot herself in the mouth. But if you look at her face is pretty much intact in this picture. Bob, do you, wouldn't you expect to see a lot more damage to her face if she had, in fact, shot herself in the mouth with an M16? Yeah, so very much. A couple things that I caught on the the podcast, the I think the father had said, or you guys had said, the father had said that the hole looked too small to be an M16, that it was a nine millimeter. So a, a nine, uh, uh, an M16 round is actually smaller in diameter than a a nine millimeter round. It's like it's between five and six millimeters is how the diameter of an M16 round. So it's smaller. The fact that that there would be a small wound like that as an exit wound, I think, isn't entirely out of the out of the question. But the reason that I know that it's bullshit is because they're saying that she had the M16 in her mouth and she pulled the trigger. And in contrary to most people, and I just know this from my former job, dealing with several gunshot wounds, self-inflicted gunshot wounds over the years, most people would think that an entry wound in a self-inflicted injury would be the small hole and then a big hole on the other side would be the exit wound. When in fact, it's usually the opposite if it's self-inflicted because you have the the blowback. If someone presses a gun against their you know their skull, the roof of their mouth, whatever it is, the ga- the exploding gases coming out will just blow that to pieces, and then the projectile itself 
doesn't, you know, like if an, an M16 round wouldn't have time to fully open and mushroom out. And that's so you would expect a smaller exit. Not to, not to say that's what happened here, but but so what I was looking for was is her mouth and face completely destroyed, and it's not. And so an M6, I, I've never dealt with a with a self inflicted gunshot wound from a high powered rifle. It's always been with a uh, a pistol. A high powered rifle has a massive charge. An M16 has a massive charge. And if that barrel was in her mouth, and I hate to be graphic in this, but she pulled the trigger. I mean, it would have blown her jaws off, her eye sockets, everything would have blown on the inside. And that just didn't happen. I think she was shot from from a distance, you know, from a couple feet away in the head is what it looks like to me. I think you're right. And this would have been so easy if they had only they could have swapped the gun. They didn't swab her for or when I say they didn't, it means it's not to anyone's knowledge because who knows what's in their reports. But Mm -hmm. was there any gunshot residue found on Lavina's hands? Um, the bullet was never recovered. If she did in fact shoot herself in the mouth, wouldn't we expect it there to be d- her DNA on the barrel of the gun? Like these are all questions that can right. easily be answered if somebody would just let, <laughs> you know, let someone in to these classified documents. I mean, this doesn't even scratch the surface because what really happens, you know, once they, um, once Lavina's father gets the CD with all the, with the autopsy and the crime scene photos, this is when things really come to light because he sees that his daughter's face was badly bruised. Remember, he saw her after the military had flown her back. They gave her plastic surgery on her nose. Right. You know, they they cleaned her up. She had bruises and scratches all over her body. There were even teeth marks on her body. She was very badly beaten. Um, There was a trail of blood outside the tent. And, you know, suggesting that Lavina had actually been dragged into the tent. There was also dirt marks on her back. And then, okay, so there is some graphic information. They found that she had burns from a corrosive chemical on her genitals. And this is possibly, I mean, also a part of her tongue was missing, a part of her vagina was missing, and a part of her anus was missing. This was, they had used, someone had used uh, like a caustic substance, uh, I think it's called lye, that Mm -hmm. you put on a wound, a wound stat maybe. And it looks as if possibly the bullet was Somewhere and someone, you know, put the that substance and then maybe cut out because they didn't want DNA evidence or the bullet, the ballistic evidence. I don't know. It's hard to say. There's no shortage of theories here. But what we know is Lavina did not do this to herself and for anyone to even suggest. And then she was fully dressed when she was found. Right. So they're suggesting that she actually, you know, burned her genitals bit herself, beat herself up, put her clothes back on, set fire. She had burn marks on her body. This is just simply, you know, just well, simply And they, not they said there was literally, they re- removed part of her, her vagina and anus were removed, like cut out, and then a caustic chemical poured on them, which was just, and, and it was the same conclusion that you and Meg both came to on the podcast, just screamed like, obviously someone's, they think they're, they're trying to hide biological evidence. Yeah, this was clearly yeah. sexual assault, and they didn't even do a rape kit. So I read somewhere that they didn't do a rape kit because she was found fully clothed, and that is absolutely ludicrous. Mm-hmm. That's ludicrous. I've never heard of such a thing. This clearly was one of, to me. This is one of the biggest military cover-ups, and we, you know, we, there's a lot of them out there, but mm-hmm. this one I think really takes the cake as one of one of the worst ones I've seen. All it takes is a quick glance at the crime scene to realize. This is absolutely not a self-inflicted gunshot wound in no way, shape, or form. 
And then you look, it doesn't take, but looking a little bit closer, just at the, just at one photo, you know, you have what an aerosol can with, um, with, uh, stuff burnt all around it. Like they were trying to burn something, burn evidence, not to mention the fact that the gun's nowhere near her, her clothes look, nothing looks right in this crime scene photo at all. And the military was very quick to create this false narrative around Lavina's mental health, which I think is bullshit. Mm-hmm. They claim that she was upset because a boyfriend broke up with her. This is a guy she had only been seeing, I believe, a couple of weeks. Right. They claim that she took these emails with her to the tent, burnt the emails, and then did all this. Not to mention, you're going to tell me this woman is suicidal and you're going to trust her with a service weapon? Like, come on. This- right, because they claim they knew this. They claim they knew she <laughs> exactly. was suicidal. Well, because, you know, this to me goes into some theories as to what could have happened, but she had filed, well, she didn't file a report, uh, an actual complaint, but she was seeking medical help for a sexually transmitted disease that she got after a sexual assault. Right. But but she had reported as a sexual assault, if if memory serves. Correct. And of course, who knows? And of course, we can never know if that was in fact a sexual assault and, you know, who perpetrated it, but it just... You know, they're trying to make all these claims that just have absolutely no basis. She was eating a lot of ice cream, they said. So she was depressed. Like it was just, it's a, it's offensive to, I think it's offensive to women. And it just shows the way women, when women are victims, how they're just torn apart. And it's so quick to assume that a woman's so fragile that if a boyfriend breaks up with her, she's going to go and kill herself. I mean, it's just insulting. In the fact, it's so insulting to think that the United States military, at least the you know the, the commanders of this post and, and base, think that the rest of the world and her family is so stupid that that you know that, as you said, well, women are fragile. They're this and that. To, that they could look at this scene and 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 look at and, and once thank God her father pushed and pushed until he got. The autopsy reports and, and and all the evidence in the case, at least some of the evidence in the case, that they could give that to him and be like, well, yeah, but she was just a woman and she was depressed. So pay no attention to what your eyes are telling you. Just ignore all that. Just listen to what we're telling you. So insulting. I feel so very horrible for the Johnson family. I could not even imagine. Could not even imagine. It's all, And some of the, and I'll, I guess I'll let you get into it too, but I mean, some of the other evidence that caught me, you know, the, the glued gloves. When they removed the gloves, they found, what was it, second or third degree burns on her hands that they were trying to hide? I read both. Yep. It looked like second or third degree burns, which I guess would go along with, you know, I think it goes along with the theory that someone's trying to cover up the evidence, Mm -hmm. right? DNA under the fingernails. Well, let's burn that away, right? Right. I mean. (sighs) Well, and you can't stress enough is that we talked about a second ago, but just to, to make very clear, someone beat the hell out of her. I mean, she was. She had she had fractures to to her face and bruises and scratches all over her body, as you said, bite marks, the the mutilation to her genitalia and all that. I mean, it, it, I believe her neck was. I'm sorry, I don't know if I mentioned, but I believe her neck was fractured as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that that information, I think you guys said, came from they 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 eventually exhumed her body and did their own autopsy. They spent thousands of dollars on exhuming the body and doing more more autopsies, having experts. And these news stations, I don't want to throw any news stations under the bus. I don't need to name names. I might have in the other episode. But a lot of big news outlets put a lot of money into this case and then didn't even end up running the story. Right. I'll, I'll throw them under the bus. CBS you paid go. for the 
for the exhumation of the of the body and then and paid for the for an independent autopsy and then the autopsy reports come back and confirm all of these other i mean 100% she was murdered including there they find that her neck was broken and then CBS wouldn't run the story ABC also had the, did a yeah. bunch of work on it wouldn't run the story and and I have to imagine that it, that had to do with um, you guys mentioned advertising dollars on the podcast, but even access, uh, you know, for a, for a major news network to have access. Because let's not forget, I mean, the military, the commander in chief of the military lives in the White House, and and so that you know there could be an issue, which is even more frustrating when you go all the way up. This was two thousand five, so we're talking about what the the mm-hmm. second Bush is the commander in chief at the time, and frankly, mm-hmm. every U.S. president. Because this is not this is not a unique situation to Lavina Johnson. It's a very it, it's a very uh, obvious incident. But but women being abused and it being covered up in the military has been going on for decades through multiple different commanders in chief, and no one's ever done a damn thing about it. No, never. And it just keeps happening. And there is a little more exposure as you know it happens more. But it's just it's just simply not enough. It's it's just yeah. It's really it's really sad because. These women and, you know, there's no shortage of these cases. And there, I, I have the number somewhere. I think there's somewhat like 14 or 15 cases that were deemed suicides that are, you know, considered like have, um, cases that look very suspicious that were deemed suicides. But if mm-hmm. you look into them, they're clearly not suicides. Yeah. And, and, and nothing happened. So what ultimately with, with Lavina's case, Nothing's done, right? I mean, there's you know, there, there's all these inquiries. I know there's been petitions. It, it's gone on the, to committee, I think, on the House or Senate floor to try to have some kind of inquiry into her death, and just no one has ever paid for what they did to Lavina Johnson. No, and I believe there's several people who should pay. I don't believe there's just. I think there may have possibly been one actual perpetrator, but mm-hmm. I believe there's there's a whole host of people who who know about something going on who are just not saying it yeah and one thing that i would love to see is where her tent is in compared to everybody else's because like you said there's a lot of people that that should be implicated in this because there was a gunshot in that tent so you know people heard the gunshot people know whoever came in to investigate this obviously knew that she had been murdered probably sexually assaulted and murdered and then literally everyone takes on the mission of covering this up and trying to make it look like a suicide so so what so they don't look bad yeah i think it probably a top military commander had something to do with this and everyone's trying to protect that person and and you know if you do some digging you'll see there's been an actual commander named in which a lot of people on the internet seem to believe is the person responsible i'm not going to go that far but i will say that individual was fired from their position just about three weeks after lavina's death Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. Um, so I think, you know, I think there's some theory is that people know what happened. And instead of bringing this commander to justice, they just, you know, made him, I don't know if they forced him to resign or what, what that process is, but claiming that it was because of an extramarital affair. But who knows? Maybe, you know, maybe people know more. Well, and the bottom line is whether that commander, whoever was the, the CEO of that post, whoever, whether or not, he was the actual individual that committed this crime or the one covering it up. He's equally culpable as, as far as I'm concerned. 
A hundred percent. And so is everyone on everyone who was supposed to be, you know, protecting her there. Right. You know. Well, it is a an absolute tragic case. We're running we're running short on on our time here, so I do want to have you before we um before I let you go. Can you touch just give people a couple of examples of episodes they may want to check out? For I'm sure all of your awesome fans will be listening to this, but you'll have some new people that are that have maybe never heard of women in crime before. Where would you recommend they 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 go to start? I think it depends where you're interested in because we cover cases in which women are the victims, women are the offender, or a trailblazer in the field, and sometimes you know it could be someone who's a victim and an offender. We know that a lot of offender a lot of offenders were once victims, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of victims become offenders. I personally. I'm really interested in cases of wrongful conviction. So Patricia Stallings is a fascinating case. That's a no crime wrongful conviction. Um, Joanne mm-hmm. Parks, we did the case before she got exonerated, but since she's been exonerated, I think it's even more interesting. I like to cover cases and I like to have people listen to cases in which there's some action that could be taken. Marche Jones is another case that's very heavy on, you know, policy implications. I think that's a great one. I'm saying a lot of my cases. Sorry, Megan, but these are the ones that I researched. <laughs> and then there's, do you know Ellen Greenberg? Amazing. It, so Ellen Ellen Greenberg, um, we just, you're airing this in March. So we just recently released an episode on Ellen Greenberg. And this is fascinating because this is similar to Lavina in the sense that the police were quick to say that it was a suicide. This woman was stabbed several times in the neck and they claim that she did this to herself. And it's another one of these cases where the, they were so quick to just say, oh, this is a suicide. She was depressed, this and that. If you look at the evidence, there's no way this woman could have done this to herself. So those those kind of cases are, to me, are really interesting. And Lavina was an early case, so we might not be as polished. So try one of our newer cases. <laughs> right. Well, and they can try the one that you just mentioned. And coming up in six days next week. Meg and Amy are going to be covering the Sandy Melgar case, so that'll be on the 23rd. So make sure you check that out. Uh, Her name is Dr. Amy Schlossberg, and the podcast is Women in Crime. Check it out. It could be your next big true crime binge. Thanks so much, Amy. Thank you, Bob, for having me. I really appreciate it. Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.